Hi, this is Julie Winkle Giulioni, author of Promotions Are So Yesterday, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Julie Winkle Giulioni. Julie is a champion for workplace growth and development. She believes that everyone deserves the opportunity to reach their potential and to support organizations and leaders who want to make that happen through her consulting and training. Julie is the co-author of the international bestseller, Help Them Grow or Watch Them Go, Career Conversations Organizations Need and Employees Want, which is translated into seven languages. She's a regular columnist for Training Industry Magazine and Smart Brief and contributes articles on leadership, career development, and workplace trends to numerous publications including The Economist. Julie lives in South Pasadena, California with her husband, daughter, and rescue pooch Pixel and is here to talk about her book, Promotions Are So Yesterday. Welcome, Julie. Thank you so much, Bill. It's great to have you back on the show. Oh, I love coming back. I've really been looking forward to our conversation. Julie, tell me, what is a quote that guides your work or your life today? I think the one that comes to my mind immediately, we teach the life we live. I heard that when I was a young mother long time ago. It's just really struck with me in life, in business. It's really the example that we set that communicates, that others follow, that others learn from. So I've tried to do that with my kids and in my community and, of course, in the work that I do as well. It's interesting, in particular in the workplace now, because we teach the life we live in our work relationships. And the way that we live People are seeing different views of our lives and our setups and how we are organized or not organized. How do you think that's impacted the way that people are able to interact with each other and collaborate effectively? That's a great observation and question. You're right. The last couple of years, as many of us took our work home and began contributing from different locations, there's a level of authenticity that came to the fore. I remember early on in the pandemic, I was speaking with someone, very professional demeanor, but clearly in her home, and her three-year-old daughter climbed up in her lap. You could see in this woman's face this the conflict because there's this beautiful child there that she wants to love. And then there's a professional conversation going on. To me, it was just the most charming moment. So I welcomed the kid and said, hey, we need an assistant. I started seeing her Barbie dolls and whatnot. In the process, not only did I meet this charming little soul, but I got to see a part of this colleague that I would have never seen in the workplace. Once it was comfortable, when she knew that she was safe to do that, there was just a whole different level of depth that our relationship could go to. Now, when I speak with her on the phone or, or when we're on Zoom or whatever, I'll say, hey, is your daughter here? Can she come help us for a couple of minutes? I think a lot of these new working relationships have ushered in a level of intimacy and transparency and authenticity that a lot of us were craving and wanting more of in the workplace before. What I love about that story, Julie, is that it also speaks to the fact that many of us are initially hesitant to show those other sides 
side. Maybe it's because we think people don't imagine that other side or that adding that piece will somehow dilute our authority or confidence or how people look at us. I know for myself, I was training a group one time and our little border collie puppy heard me say something where I was speaking louder to the group and he thought it was a command to come up. And I just said, let's roll with it. Here he is. It was like, oh, I was hesitant to have him join, but then I just decided it's better to just go with it rather than to try to stop it. It was just silly to try to deny that he was there. You could see the head and the ears. Oh, and the beauty of it, he's part of your family, Bill. You bring him into the picture. You and I, and many of the people that we know, have felt comfortable leaning into it. I've also really felt a lot of compassion for folks who've struggled with allowing for that. I remember speaking to one supervisor at one point, and she said, everyone keeps wanting me to turn my camera on, but I'm in a tiny apartment and it's not very well decorated. I don't know what other people are going to think of me when they see that background. It's heartbreaking, the layers of stress that that can also introduce to folks. That speaks to the issue that a lot of people have noticed and sometimes experienced, that the people who are the most vocal and active in group discussions during a Zoom call is not the same group that acts that way in an office environment or a boardroom or just when people are in real life face to face. What observations have you had about that? Because it speaks to development opportunities in groups. My experience is in large part through the lens of training and workshops that I've been delivering. And in that setting, as well as in the meeting setting, you've got people who have traditionally been maybe a little reluctant, more introverted, may need a little more of that separate thinking time before they're ready to jump into a conversation, for instance. It's been fascinating to watch how those sorts of folks are thriving in the online virtual training environment as well as the meeting environment. When you invite, for instance, the group to chat their ideas with their fingertips before actually bringing voice to it, for an introvert or for someone who wants to think it through, work through the, the idea a bit, that gives them that sense of security to then when we say, let's unmute and have a conversation. They've done their dress rehearsal through the, the chat and are much more comfortable and conversant when it comes time to actually have that conversation. I think the technology that we've been relying upon over the last couple of years has literally and figuratively given voice to people who in the past were a little bit more shy or off to themselves. Let's just dig into that one more layer, which is as people are now looking to return to the office, what would you encourage managers and leaders and even colleagues to do to support the best of what they've learned about their coworkers through the Zoom meetings and the online interaction as we come back into to more of a hybrid environment and people are meeting in person at least some of the time. Yeah, it's a very dicey time, isn't it? It feels like a very tenuous time for many organizations as they invite people back, people who in many cases have become very comfortable working outside of the traditional workplace, inviting them back. Of course, others just can't wait to get back. They've been dying for human companionship. I think as a, a leader, as a manager, the challenge really is, or the opportunity really is to meet everybody where they are, to really help each individual transparently share where their comfort lies, what they're going to need 
need in order to make that transition. And then to bring the team together for those conversations so that each of us understands what we can do to support our colleagues. Managers aren't in it alone. Managers are heavily burdened. It's been a very difficult few years for managers who've stepped up in extraordinary ways in so many organizations, but they're not in it by themselves. This is really a time as we come back together, whether it's hybrid or all co-located, whatever it is, to really revisit how we operate as a team and what our new norms are. We can't rubber band back to the ground rules, the agreements we had before. The world is different. We are different. So it's time to recast that, come to some new agreements that create the kind of psychological safety and the, the culture that people need to really thrive today. That's very well said. I hope people understand that it does require more time to understand where people are coming from, what their expectations are, and also ask, where will you be able to produce the best work? How can we benchmark this better so that everyone is getting their needs met and people are available at the times when they're needed and you're able to collaborate? Then also just to build more of that cohesion as a team, a company, and a business culture. Let's get to promotions or so yesterday. All right, let's do it. <laughs> the overall premise of the book is that through creative, strategic, developmental intervention, we can serve a highly beneficial means of deepening the bench strength of an organization, of a department, and increased retention when a time when talented employees are experiencing a lot of upward and lateral flexibility, not to mention geographic freedom. It gives the company more pull in attracting even better employees. We're experiencing this luck. At the time, your book comes out and says, look, one thing that you shouldn't, shouldn't overlook is that promotions really may not be as flexible in meeting the needs of your workforce today. What else would you add? What did I miss in terms of what the thrust and purpose was of the book. Wow. Can I get that in writing? I'm just going to start putting that in the marketing text. You really nailed it, Bill. I guess the bottom line for me, as I've looked at the environment and worked with thousands of managers over these last 10 years, what I found is it hasn't gotten much easier for them to engage in career conversations and to offer the kind of career development that their employees want. They're trying hard. It's not for lack of effort by any stretch. The problem is that we've just all bought into this really limited definition of what careers are. Careers are our titles. A career development is the promotion that takes us from title to title. So we continue to measure ourselves by these artificial yardsticks of what they're calling me. What's my position? What's on the door or on the business card? And careers are bigger than that. If we can expand our definition of what career is, is we can dramatically expand what's possible to help people feel engaged and growing, as you said, retain talent and attract the talent that we need. Absolutely. It's all about possibilities. I love that we've brought this in. You do a really nice job in the book of explaining how there are seven distinct areas, all beginning with C's, that I'm going to just read through here to get them out on the table. These are ways that people can think about how to expand employees' opportunities to grow and develop win-win-win relationships so that the employee wins, the team, the department, the manager benefits, and then the company benefits because it's creating this kind of flexible culture. The first one is contribution. Then there's competence, connection, confidence, 
evidence of the employee challenge in order to grow. And here's one that's unexpected, contentment, and then also choice. All of these are different dimensions for looking into the roles, responsibilities, and activities that every employee has that can make it a richer and more value-add experience. How did you come up with this list and what do you want managers to think about as they hear this description? So how I came up with the list, over the last 10 years, I've done this informal field research with thousands of individuals. Everybody I engage with, my standard question is, what does career mean to you? Of course, after you get through the layer of way to take care of myself and my family, which makes sense. It, it actually goes up Maslow's hierarchy, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. The richness of what what people are looking for from their relationship with work is extraordinary. It didn't mesh with that traditional definition of career development is moving up the, the corporate ladder. So over time, the patterns just repeated themselves and the C's, as you mentioned, the contribution, confidence, connection, and so forth, those developments just became increasingly clear to me. It's almost like the vision I have in my head, and I don't know that I can describe this very well, is when we look at the org chart as the way to think about career development, it's very one and two dimensional. I almost see that what this framework does, it puts a prism up to career. And as the light of career goes through it, it breaks down entirely differently into these different dimensions. So for instance, contribution doesn't have anything to do with the title or a role. It's something I can do right within the role that I've got. When we did some research, we took these seven alternative dimensions, and then we also included climb, the final C, that climb up the corporate ladder, it's traditional promotional trajectory. Well, we did the research and we just asked people prioritize, which of these are most interesting to you right now? I was blown away. Contribution was number one. In fact, in aggregate, all of the other C's ranked higher than climb. So many managers are avoiding the career conversation or dancing around it because they think that their employees all want that one thing they can't give them, that promotion, the new title, whatever it might be. The truth is there are these seven other dimensions that you read out that people are even more interested in and that are completely within the employee and the, the manager's sphere of influence. That's the beauty of this model is that people can apply this without tapping into additional resources without hiring additional people, without asking for additional budget. You could say, look, here's how I want to find out what you want from this position, how it's going to help your career develop in the path that you are most interested in. And then let's creatively think of ways to do this. It doesn't require HR's intervention. It might be HR led, but it doesn't require changes in budget. It doesn't require building a new building. It's something that makes it very satisfying, especially I think for younger workers who are looking looking to add a lot of tools to their toolkit, have a lot of experiences, build their connections and their network. Oh yeah, absolutely. And the other groups that this kind of a model appeals to are those who frequently have managers say, what about the people who don't want to grow, don't want to develop? So frequently, you've got people who report to you who are very happy doing what they're doing. They don't want a different title, a different role. They don't want to move to another city. That doesn't mean they don't want to grow. But if we're only thinking about growth and development in terms of mobility like that, then of course they're saying, no, thank you very much. When we can put the prism, we could introduce contribution or choice or contentment or challenge. Suddenly that's something that we can invite into the envelope of the current role 
And they are thrilled to be able to keep growing in place. What I love about this is I actually thought of an example with two people who we've worked with the last couple of years and they're managers, but they're very content working where they are. They don't want to grow. They are horribly embarrassed when their managers want to recognize them because that's the only way that the managers understand is how to reward them. They don't want to be the center of attention, but they do want additional challenges. They do want to be able to develop their skill sets. The two people are just very like this, but it also says that managers need to think a little bit more broadly and engage in those conversations and be open to the answers of what would you find more fulfilling in the next six months? Absolutely. It really does come down to conversation and deepening one's relationship with others and understanding of others. What's really important to them right now? The other thing about the model is it's a point in time. So Today, right now, I might be really interested in developing through contribution, but I may get to a point where I feel like, okay, that need is satisfied. I've grown in this direction. Maybe it's time to um, focus on contentment. Maybe I need to step back a little bit, find balance or ease or more meaning in the work that I'm doing. None of this is cast in concrete. It really is in flux depending upon what the needs of the individual are at any given time. You use a phrase in the book that locating limits is liberating. Kudos for the alliteration. Please expand on that thought. So I think that comes in the chapter on confidence. Confidence is not necessarily something that we typically think about when we create a career development model. Yet any of us who've ever bumped up against a lack of confidence, and I know very few who haven't, know how debilitating it can be and how career limiting it can be. The way I've organized the book is all of the major chapters are dedicated to one of these dimensions. It digs into the dimension a little bit about the research and and why it's important. But most of all, it's tactics and ways to work with others to help them develop that particular dimension. So one of the strategies in the confidence department is sometimes, and it sounds like a bit of a downer, sometimes the thing that really builds one's confidence is knowing where the edge of capacity is, where I'm going to bump up against that place where I can't predictably deliver what I want to deliver. Like I said, it sounds like a downer, oh, I can't do that. But knowing that's where the limit is allows me to be really confident within that space that the limits define. Right. So you have this circle and it's now I know what my capacity is here. And it removes a lot of the anxiety as to not knowing where that line is. I can speak to groups of up to three, but don't put me in front of a group of 50. That's a great way of framing it. Exactly. I can rock the center of that circle, but as I start getting out there toward the edge, I get a little rocky in contrast. I was smiling to myself as you were describing it because an image came to me, a calendar invite, which says, we're going to locate the limits of your confidence. That might not be the way to address the meeting, but it could certainly be an agenda point that people have on there with the context of how it reduces anxiety. It's paradoxical that way, that locating these limits actually reduces your anxiety because now you're not having to worry every possibility. You're able to focus on what you're doing well. And when it's time to expand that, you know how to do it. And when it's not, where you can do it very confidently within your wheelhouse. Yeah, I love the way you said that. And yeah, probably a meeting invitation saying, figuring out where you can't pull it off any longer is not going to be the most empowering. But having that conversation with a manager and the manager saying, I'm here, so let's push it. Go out there to that kind of scary zone. We can do it together. I've got your back. I'll 
be your safety net. We can do some experimentation and see where it goes. When the manager is there, that's a game changer for folks. And again, boost the confidence that they have. Yeah, it's very closely related to another idea that comes up. Helping people and directing them toward their discomfort is actually a supportive move. It's something you don't normally think of, but in order to grow, how can you have growth without discomfort? I just don't get how people think that can happen. There's going to be discomfort because we're asking people to change. We're asking people to add on and think in bigger ways. How do you prepare someone for that kind of conversation? Who's going to facilitate it? Not the person who's going to be answering it, but to facilitate that effectively. How do you prepare a manager for doing that? A lot of it really has to do with the relationship that the manager has with the employee. A manager who I trust, who's been there for me, who's had my back in the past. A manager like that can come and say, all right, it's time, Bill, for you to step out and start speaking to those groups of 30. Come on. I know you can do it. Let's prep together. Let's go through where your fears are. Let's work through the kinks. I'm going to be there. I'll be right there in the front of the audience, smiling, holding up the cue cards as you need it. Somebody who I've got a relationship with who understands me is going to be able to get through and help me, or in this case, help you speak to your group of 30. In your case, it's probably, I can't imagine that your discomfort zone starts in until 30,000 or something. But that relationship makes all the difference in the world, the psychological safety, the trust that exists. And so as a manager, you really need to earn the right to be able to push people into the discomfort zone, where, as you said, the, the learning actually happens. The other thing is a, a leader that makes that kind of encouragement and nudging more effective is having real clarity around what the person's growth goals are. So making people uncomfortable for the sake of discomfort is certainly not something that's very very productive, but helping people confront the discomfort because it's in service of being able to contribute at a different level, being able to do something they haven't done before. When we can create the breadcrumb trail between the activity that's generating the discomfort and what they're going to get out of it, then suddenly folks can more easily bridge the gap. Can you share an example from your work training organizations and teaching the people inside to have these kinds of conversations that uses this guidance and directing people in the direction of discomfort in order to help them grow? Wow, let's see. It's so central to so much of the work that I do because as you said, repeating what one's done before doesn't present a lot of new learning. We need to step into uh, to different environments and, that stretch the limits, that step into the discomfort zone. So let's talk about an example I'll share and it might remind you of another one of yours. So I know that there was a director who wanted more responsibility in the back office support function. And her manager, who was a vice president, was saying maybe she should take on the overseas support area and just do it gradually. A lot of times people don't understand how to make that transition because they never had that gradual introduction themselves. What would you advise someone? Her name was Tina and his name was Rick. What would you advise Rick to do to help structure that for Tina so that it builds a relationship and doesn't just expand her capabilities because there's a need there? That goes back to your win-win, doesn't it? So that it uh, a benefit to everyone. So for Rick, the manager, to help build that breadcrumb back to what is most important to 
Tina, what she wants to learn, how she wants to grow, how she wants to perhaps contribute at different levels becomes key. And then breaking it down, the gradual nature of the transition is such that we've got to take that big goal, that big step and turn it into baby steps. So what are you going to do tomorrow? And what are you going to do next week? Then what are you going to do the week after that? So that each of the steps or each of the, the bites becomes much more doable. Finally, as managers, I think we forget that important role that we play in terms of providing that thread of continuity and support and reinforcement throughout. So frequently managers think if I set the person up really well, lay out the plan, make sure they've got the resources, all of that, then my work here is done. And man, that's only the beginning, isn't it? Because tomorrow when Tina stumbles a little bit and starts to think, oh gosh, I made a mistake. I shouldn't be doing this. He's got to be there to talk through what are you learning? Where was it challenging? What are you going to do differently next time? That creates the confidence that she's going to need for that bigger step and so on. Also to offer perspective. You thought it was a fumble, but really that's par for the course. Good point. And where most of the learning comes from is from the fumbles. With that expression, we learn from our mistakes. And as a leader, that's one of your biggest roles too, is to squeeze as much learning out of that as possible. As you were talking about the gradual example, an example that came to my mind was less gradual, more of an overnight sort of thing, where Dina, a very talented recruiter, was promoted temporarily into the global recruiting role in her organization. It's a technology firm. She had been a recruiter, moved into this global recruiting role literally overnight because someone had gone out on leave. And she did not have the benefit of that kind of a gradual baby steps from here to there. She needed to flip a switch and be able to perform at a very different level of visibility in the organization. She rocked it. She absolutely nailed this job. But looking back on her situation, she did it in large part because she had a highly supportive manager who was absolutely there day in and day out, coaching her actively towards success. But she also had a really supportive team. So frequently we forget that development isn't an exclusive relationship between the manager and the employee. The team that you have around you, the support system that you call cultivate around you has a tremendous effect on your ability to grow and succeed in any kind of a role. So her team really lifted her up and helped her to perform well there. Interestingly, when the person whose job she had taken over was ready to come, she was ready to go back and do the work she had done before. So it, it was interesting that she got a taste of that and decided, well, I would prefer what was over here. So it was a nice experiment. I love that was an experiment so that there was a choice at the end of it. It wasn't that there's this need. It was that this person had stepped away and it's going to be stepping back. And during this time, you're going to get to have this experience because then she could have maybe continued. They could have split it. She may have taken it to another company, but it was something that she got to own through that experience. A phrase that you use for the book that made me initially a little bit more vigilant, I sat up when I read it, was that people transform while they perform. At first, I thought from good training and coaching, you give people safe environments where they could make mistakes, then you send them out once they've developed that level of confidence. There wasn't any conflict with that, with the way that you describe it. You help bring some edge to it and say that it's only when there are really stakes involved 
hope that people make better decisions and they call on those resources and they're able to grow in different dimensions because they're in a meeting. I remember one example you brought up where this woman, Antoine, and she wanted exposure to the bigger picture in the organization. Her manager was in too many meetings. So he delegated her to go into meetings and represent him and represent the department. And that was exposure in baby steps, but it was a real meeting. It wasn't a practice meeting. It wasn't a role play, but maybe there's more to the example where there was that kind of practice in advance. Because I imagine that people listening to this would shoot down the idea because they're saying, oh, I couldn't just send someone in. They wouldn't know what to say. They wouldn't know what not to say. They wouldn't know to beware of Teddy, who's always trying to get more resources from our department. And he might try to talk her into some agreement that she's not authorized to make and it would be embarrassing for her. But there is that kind of preparation to build the safeguards in place so that people can transform while they perform. Say more about that, please, Julie. Oh, there's so much to unpack there. Bill, thank you. We're going back to a theme that you established early on is this idea of win-win because that example is a perfect win-win. What manager doesn't have too many meetings, too many assignments, too much work, too many deliverables, whatever it might be that are drudgery for the manager, but could be really powerful development for one of their team members. So how we can strategically make some of those transfers, delegate some of those responsibilities, but do it with diligence and with care and making it a development experience. So in that case, Antoine's manager really had a responsibility to your point to put some guardrails there, to do a little coaching. And in fact, maybe have Antoine come to a couple of meetings first, get the lay of the land, figure out who's who in the zoo, figure out where the landmines might be, do a little behind the scene coaching. Then before that first solo meeting, review the agenda together, anticipate where things could go off the rails, what needs to be addressed, have some perhaps rehearsal even about if so-and-so demands this, how are you going to respond? Then debriefing. That kind of a commitment can feel daunting to a manager at first, but that's what turns this activity into development and not just more work that you're throwing over the fence. And the investment that a manager makes in that kind of transfer of responsibility and development is going to pay off tremendously as Antoine can then move forward and independently handle these meetings and just call out special circumstances and report on on those kinds of themes. So ultimately it makes for a win-win. When we talk about transforming while performing, the other thing that we're talking about is we can use real work as the vehicle for development. Time is the number one reason people give for not engaging in the kind of development that they want. So if we can embed the development and the learning right into the work that people are doing, then that time issue, it's off the table. It's not any extra time. It's just repurposing that time. Exactly. Sometimes it does take an investment of time on the part of the man to get to a point where they're seeing that payoff. The way that you phrase it with an investment makes it so much more understandable understandable as to what the payoff is from that investment. So thank you for that, Julie. Now, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best Lightning Round? I hope so. Let's go into it. So at the beginning of the conversation, we talked
talked about early influences. When you were a teenager, Julie, what's a song that you love? Oh my gosh, anything from David Cassidy. Partridge Family, that's right. Don't you remember Metal Lunchbox? Oh gosh, I've got one here in my credenza. That's so funny, yeah. So here we are two years into the pandemic and you continue to thrive in bringing these ideas to HR departments and leaders who need to find creative ways to effectively develop their people. What's been one of the most effective ways you find to get the word out about your mission each week? I am constantly talking with people and it's counterculture, but it's working for me. I just get on the phone and call people. It's become so commonplace that we schedule our calls and we email to say we're going to call or we send the meeting invitation to our calendar so that we can have a call. And I started during the pandemic just picking up the phone and calling people spontaneously. Even now, people who are used to it are still a little bit out of sorts for a moment because it's just out of the blue call and they love it. The spontaneity of it, the breaking up of the day or whatever. So I think that's probably my go-to vehicle is the phone rather than email and texting. We talk a lot about giving good advice and yet we receive advice that's ranges from fantastic advice down to terrible advice. What would you say is the worst advice you ever got as an adult? Oh, wow. Probably had something to do with the risks associated in, uh, with going out on my own. When I went out on my own 22 years ago this summer, there were plenty of people who thought, why are you doing a perfectly good job? You love the work that you're doing. You're paid well. There's security there. So I did have some folks who questioned the wisdom of that. And uh, 22 years later, I'm just going to say thank you very much for your feedback. <laughs> What's a book that you've given the most as a gift that's not one of your own? That's a really good caveat. I think right now the, the current one is Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown. It's a, it's a beautiful book and uh, very gift worthy. Julie, what's your personal definition of success? I know I'm being successful when... I have choices. I can make decisions about the work that I do, who I get to do it with, when I do it, how I do it choice, autonomy, volition, control. That's success for me. What would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's led to the most personal satisfaction? And I can't say I've completely stopped it. I have to be honest, but I've reduced it. The um, checking my phone first thing in the morning, the days when I have the discipline to do my meditation, have my water and coffee, to take a walk, to reflect, journal. Those are the best days. Even though I get that great feedback from those days, there's just still that little bit of niggling that wants me to go in there and check on email and see who I need to get back to. Yeah. What you're describing is a perfect morning routine, one that works for you and checking your phone for email or for social media updates just isn't part of that. I always look at it as email is somebody else trying to set my daily agenda. And I like to check in once or twice a day, but it's not a constant presence in my life or my attention. You are a wise man, Bill. So Promotions Are So Yesterday is a book that empowers managers to make their workplace more fulfilling and productive without leaving that change to the traditional structure, the traditional company ladder. What is it that people need to think about in order to see this as a welcome possibility rather than as a threat to the existing structure in the way that we've always done things, the way that we've always done them? I think most employees and managers alike see 
see this as a, a welcome, helpful, hopeful way of approaching career development. To date, there's been very little pushback because folks are looking for a way to have agency, to be able to have control over their careers. When we can look beyond and between and beside those promotions and roles and positions, when we can invoke things and develop things like contribution or contentment or confidence or challenge, suddenly we've got this open playing field within which to grow as opposed to what feels like a pretty closed playing field when you're looking for promotions uh, alone. So I, I think the opportunity here is to really lean into the possibility, the almost countless possibilities that there are for growth as opposed to the limitations that we have traditionally bumped up against with promotion. Michael Bengay Stenger blurbed into your book and says, your employees may not want to, quote, play the game or even climb the ladder, but they don't want to get left behind either. What they want is a career to be proud of, one of contribution and fulfillment. This practical book will help you coach them to do that on their own terms. I like the aspect that he brings in that it's on the terms of the employee and what it requires is something that we all want. I was very proud to include his endorsement on the book. And that's right. People want to be in charge of their careers. They ought to be in charge of their careers. And yet until now, we've only had one way forward, that positional promotional sort of thing. So what we're able to do is give people a, a menu of options. In fact, I should probably mention we've got a self-assessment on the, the website that lets folks get in and start thinking about this a little bit differently and discover where their interests lie, which dimensions are most interesting to them as a basis for having those conversations with a, a manager or supervisor. Julie, where can people go to find out more about you and your work online, including getting access to this assessment? Thank you for asking. My central repository online would be juliewinklejulioni.com. I'm sure you'll put that in the, the show notes with all those vowels in there. We want to make it super easy for people listening to go to the show notes and find the website that will link to Julie Winkle Giulioni, as well as your social media, as well as places to buy the book and benefit from the work that you've put together and helping. So once again, Julie Winkle Giulioni, author of Promotions Are So Yesterday, Redefine Career Development, Help Employees Thrive. I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.